in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And I want to stop there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, that is no little statement. Let's consider the heavens. Now, the original word here is not heaven, as in the place that we as Christ followers will someday dwell with God. No, this is heavens. This is the visible sky, the atmosphere, the universe. Okay, so let me get a little, let me get a little detailed with you. God is so massive, so beyond our, our wildest of dreams. It's estimated that uh, there is close to 4 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, of which our planet Earth just so happens to be amidst the cosmos. The closest star is the, uh, to the Earth is the sun. Now, now light travels at 186,000 miles a second. Um, that's really fast, if you uh, don't know. Um, and uh, light, although uh, traveling at this ridiculous speed, 186,000 miles a second, takes 8.3 minutes to reach uh, the Earth's surface from the sun. Now, the next closest star is Proxima Centauri, because, well, because we can't understand it in seconds or miles or um, any sort of distance that we have, they calculate it in light years, okay? So a light year is light moving at the speed of light at 186,000 miles a second over a year's period of time, 365 days. The next closest star outside of the sun takes 4.3 years for the light to reach the earth's surface. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God spoke the heavens into existence, and we can't even begin to fathom how massive the nature of our cosmos is. Remember the estimated 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, of which we just so happen to be nestled in? Astronomers estimate that the Milky Way galaxy is one of over 100 billion galaxies in the known universe. The heavens are gargantuan, and our God created them. Yet amidst the massive, amidst the massive, God cares about the minute. How do we know that? God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth is 8,000 miles in diameter, all right, 8,000 miles in diameter. If you read the rest of the Genesis account, we understand that, that earth, um, everything on earth has been created by God, from the waters to the insect on a, a small leaf. Now, let me give you a little insight to how massive God is, yet how meticulous he is. If the earth was a ping pong ball, if the earth was a ping pong ball, then the sun would be 15 feet wide. If the earth was a ping pong ball, the sun would be 15 feet wide. Catch this. 960,000 earths could fit inside of the sun. But the sun's not the biggest star on the earth, or in our cosmos. Now, there, then, there's a star called Betelgeuse. Now, Betelgeuse sits 520 light years away. It makes up the western shoulder of Orion, of which we can see that star in our constellations from Earth. Betelgeuse is twice the size, you thought I was going to say the sun in this moment, but no, Betelgeuse is twice the size of the Earth's orbit around our sun. Remember the Earth, 8,000 miles wide in diameter? Betelgeuse is 700 million miles in diameter. Oh, and 
if you could fit the earth inside of Betelgeuse, 262 trillion earths could fit inside of Betelgeuse. But it's not the biggest star either. There's Canis Majoris. Canis Majoris is the largest known star found in the universe. It's approximately 4,900 light years away. That means light traveling at the speed of 186,000 miles a second uh, over a year's period of time. It would take 49, it takes 4,900 years for the light from that star to reach Earth's surface. If Earth was a ping pong ball, Canis Majoris would be the size of Mount Everest. Yet amidst the massive, our mighty God sees the minute. Here's this little ping pong ball of which we sit on. Can you see yourself? <laughs> God can. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, this is what scripture tells us. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God created the human body in all of its glory after himself. Our bodies are a work of meticulous nature. Did you know that the average human being's heart beats about 60 to 100 beats a minute? Now, let's just average that out, 75 beats a minute. That means that our hearts pump 108,000 times a day. 108,000 times a day, our hearts uh, pump blood through our body. In the process of that, they pick up oxygen in the lungs, uh, of which we breathe 20,000 times. 20,000 times we breathe in and out throughout the day. That oxygen brings in, or that, that breath brings in fresh oxygen and it exhales carbon dioxide. And then that oxygen is carried throughout the body to the muscles for strength, uh, to the stomach for uh, digestion, and more. But maybe no greater purpose of the oxygen that we, we breathe in and the, the blood that then pumps through our bodies to take that oxygen to it is the oxygen that goes to our brain, right? Our, our brain is the, the central computer in our, uh, our head. <laughs> the brain has about 100 billion neurons in it that transmit information that help to make up trillions of synaptic connections that allow the body to touch taste, and smell, and see the world around us, of which God created for us. God is immense yet attentive. God is colossal yet considerate. God is unfathomable yet understanding. The psalmist said it like this in, in Psalm 8. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set into place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Now I want you to think about this. Think about the grand story that you are a part of. That the, the God of the universe and all this splendor cares about, about you. And that he cares so much that he was willing to send his son, Jesus Christ. The, the same God that spoke Canis Majoris into existence, the same God that has created the hundreds of billions of neurons in your brain, allowed himself to become flesh and to live amongst us. His story, your next chapter. This is why the story of the healing of this man at the pool is so powerful. Because you can look at all these scientific facts. You can study the cosmos. You can study the human body. And you can see just how big our God is. But then you begin to recognize how detailed and meticulous he is. And that same, is, that same God is seen in who Christ is on this earth. 
the stories that we hear um, in our gospel account of who Jesus was, we recognize that he is, he is mighty and massive, yet he cares about the minute. Turn with me to John 5. We're going to be in uh, that passage throughout the morning. It's on page 864 in the Bibles in front of you. We're going to start in verse 1 of John 5. And now it says this. Sometime later, Jesus went to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep's Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called um, Bethesda, in which it is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there. Now Bethesda uh, means the house of the flowing. Uh, it was common in that day that uh, a common belief that water had curative powers. Now you remember a couple of weeks ago we looked at um, the, the story of the, the woman at the well, right? And the water, and we talked about Christ being the, the fulfilling water that we need. And he talked about that to this woman at the well. More reason to understand this imagery here as well. Apparently, here at um, Bethesda, there was uh, maybe some underground springs. And so when the waters bubbled or stirred, it was said that whoever got into the water quickly, uh, the one that was in there first was going to be, be healed. So here laid all these numbers of disabled folks. Can you imagine the sound? Like the sound of like the shuffling of feet, um, the scurrying to try to get to the pool so that that person could be healed when somebody says, I think the water just moved. I heard one relate to a memory he had of seeing vast throngs of people um, that thought uh, the water of the, the Gange River in Calcutta was, uh, was medicinal he said the only thing was, was just up the stream, he had seen the, the large sewage being pumped into the same river, but yet they thought this was going to, to fix them, to make them well. It seems to be a similar scene here in our story this morning. He recognizes, Christ recognizes that while this man is full of pain, his situation is, seems to be helpless. The limitless sees the limited. You know, the New King James Version of the Scripture says it like this in John chapter 5, um, verses 5 and 6. It says, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years when Jesus saw him lying there. A certain man, one single, solitary man in the midst of a large crowd of people. And Jesus sees him there. That's the gospel, that Jesus cares about the one. That's why it's, we've been challenging you over the last few weeks to, to take one of these uh, invite cards and to grab a, a Coke bottle that represents that one person in your life, the one person that you care about, you want to see come to, to know who Christ is, and you're going to invite them to join you for Easter next Sunday. Would you, would you take this with you today? Would you go grab a, a Coke bottle if you haven't grabbed one? And when you, you go invite that person, and when they come, you drink that Coke, and you be reminded that God cares about that one person. In Mark chapter 10, we see that. <laughs> Jesus is, uh, is ministering, and all of a sudden, all these kids are flocking to him. His disciples are like, dude, get away, get away, kids. They're like rebuking the kids is actually the term it uses in that scripture. And then Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He cares about them. 
We see it in Luke chapter 7. There's a woman that uh, comes to Jesus. He's amongst all these religious elite. He, he's having this conversation and, and teaching and talking. And now this woman comes in. She's got a bottle of perfume. She breaks a bottle of perfume and pours it on him, uh, on his feet. And then she starts crying and she starts wiping uh, her tears and this perfume and her hair on, on, on Jesus' feet. And Jesus looks down at her and he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He recognizes her when he didn't have to. In, in John 4, we see Jesus meet the Samaritan woman like we talked about. He, he wasn't supposed to talk to Samaritan. He was a Jew, right? No, no. Jesus cares about the one. Jesus was never falsely impressed with large crowds. Whatever the size, he never let it get in the way of those who most desperately needed him. This man had been sick for 38 years. And Jesus saw him amidst the massive. The mighty God sees the minute. So don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged about the pain that you have. Don't be discouraged about the trial. Don't be discouraged about the uncertainty or the difficulties or the sickness that you face. Because the God of the universe looks down and says, you are not alone. To the person whose marriage is hanging on by a thread, you are not alone. God sees you. To the individual that has received word that cancer is back, you are not alone. God sees you. To the man that deals with chronic pain and wonders if he can just make it through the day, you are not alone. God sees you. To the woman who has miscarried a child and so desperately wants to see her family expand, you are not alone. God sees you. To the addict that aches for, drug, for the drug yet fights for sobriety, you're not alone. God sees you. To the students whose parents have divorced and you wonder, does anybody care about me? You're not alone. God sees you. To the mother and father who has seen their son or daughter live a lifestyle of destruction and hurt, you are not alone. God sees you. Whatever your circumstance the God of the universe walks with you amongst your pain. The limitless sees the limited. He sees you, and he loves you, and he doesn't want this for you. You know, I've found through the years that I think people sometimes just get into their situation, and they start to lose hope. They lose the expectation. They lose the optimism that their situation could ever change. And, and maybe in a sense, they're right in this world to feel that way. But when you understand who God is, when you begin to just grasp just a, a glimpse of the mighty God that we, we serve, the God that, that made the massive universe that we live amongst, you recognize that Christ can change things. Without God, you're going to be hopeless. With God, you can be fearless. But when we pity ourselves, all we see is our, our own problems. Turn back to verse 6 of this, uh, of this story. It says, when, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Why am I trying, why I'm trying to get in? Someone else goes down and gets, gets in ahead of me. Right? Misery will master you unless you allow Christ to master your misery. This man had been sick for 38 years. Day after day, he had come to the pool knowing that there's no way he's going to get to the water. His situation has become hopeless, and he's just kind of given in to his illness. He's become a prisoner of his own despair. 
So Jesus asked him the question, do you want to get well? You want to be made well? Seems like a dumb question, right? But not so fast. Jesus wants to cut through the layers here. He wants to cut through the excuses and the defenses that have built up year after year. How can you go through this? He wants to see, is there any untouched shred of hope within this man that someday he maybe could just walk without his sickness again? Think about how this man must have felt. No medical help. I mean, there's no medical help in that day is ever going to make him well. For 40 years, he's almost 40 years, he's laying here helpless and hopeless. I think we live in a culture that likes to play victim, right? I don't know. Maybe it started the day that someone decided to sue McDonald's because their hot coffee was hot, right? <laughs> we, we like to blame others, right? We like to point to uh, our circumstances and say, that's why we are this way, right? We're here this way because of such and such or so and so. Playing the victim will only continue to allow you to be the victim of yourself. In Christ, you are not a victim. No matter what you're going through, what you have gone through, or what you're going to go through, Christ doesn't see you as a victim. In the book of Exodus, in chapter 3, uh, Moses is getting ready to lead, uh, lead the, a group of people out of Israel, God's people out of Israel. And uh, and uh, or out of Egypt, I should say, in, uh, to the promised land. He's getting ready to lead the Israelites. And he's having this moment of uh, playing the victim. And uh, he's like, I, I don't think I can do it, God. What am I supposed to tell him? Who, who am I supposed to say, sent me? And God says this. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And God says, I am. I am what you need. How are you going to push through the pain? I am. How are you going to get clean? I am. How are you going to mend that relationship? I am. How are you going to make the tough decision? I am. How are you going to fight the cancer? I am. How are you going to make ends meet? I am. How are you going to face the trial? I am. How are you going to live the next day? I am. How are you going to face your fear? I am. How are you going to? I am. God will never look down at you and see a victim. He will always look to you and see an opportunity for victory. In Romans chapter 8, that's exactly what we're told. It says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is Christ Jesus our Lord. It's been said only God can turn a mess into a message, a test into a testimony, a trial into a triumph, and a victim into victory. Why? Because our hurt has a, has a healer. Now, turn back with me to, to, to John 5. Jesus has asked the man, do you want to be healed? Do you want to, to leave this infirmity in the past? And despite the man's belief um, of the bubbling water somehow bringing him hope, Hope that, had, well, he had given up on long ago. Jesus looks the man in the eye. The creator of the cosmos cares so much that he steps into this man's world and he has compassion on him. Verse 8 says this. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured, and he picked up his mat and walked. The story shows us the heart of God. That God loves, that God leads, that God hears, that God speaks, that God knows, that God sees, that God cares. He cares about you. He cares about me. 
In Psalm 86, verse 15, it says, But you, Lord, you are compassionate. You are a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Our pain has a solution. It's Jesus. Now, I know that some of you are like wondering, though. If that's the case, then why did blank happen to me? Right? If that's the case, then why did I get this diagnosis? If that's the case, then why am I going through this? If that's the case, why did my wife or my spouse leave me? If that's the case, why did I lose my job? If that's the case, why is all this bad thing happening to me? If that's the case, if God is the pain taker, then why am I still in pain? Remember the gargantuan size of God that we can't fully comprehend? Our ways are not his ways. And the idea of uh, a bad thing, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, good people is subjective because really there are no, no such thing as good people in God's eyes because the scripture says it's pretty clearly that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Sin has wrecked this world. There is going to be pain and suffering in this world. God is, yes, sovereign, but our free will has caused quite a mess. And the ability to make our own decisions has caused quite a few trials and difficulties. God never intended this world to be full of pain. God never intended this world to be full of sorrow. God never intended this world to be full of death. God is a God of life. Yet in the world, difficulty awaits us. But that's where sovereignty, the sovereignty of God is seen the most. Yeah, maybe God is going to heal you, to take away your pain. And show you just how miraculous he is. Or maybe he's just going to sustain you through the pain. And help you know that he will give you what you need to get through the day. It's been said, our present circumstances may not change. But through God's compassion and kindness and love, we will receive much more than we could ever deserve. You see, it works like this. Know God and you'll have no peace. N-O, no, you don't, you have no God, you're going to have no peace. But know God, and you're going to know peace. You know, this week, as I studied out this passage of scripture, there was something that just caught me off guard. And something that I, I guess I glanced over through the other times of study, through the years of this passage. And I mean, the man's sick for 38 years. For 38 years, he's, he's defined by the sickness, um, he, he's been labeled as an outcast. He's, he's become, in a sense, like this forgotten cause. For 38 years, he's been ignored day after day when he comes to the pool for healing. Then suddenly, this man from out of town comes in, and he says, pick up your mat and walk. And the man stands up and walks. Now, this happened on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath was a day of rest, and in that day, um, it was considered work for you to carry your mat and walk. So all these religious leaders are upset and like, why are you walking with your mat? Who did this to you? Who healed you on the Sabbath? And uh, the man, uh, it's, not, it's not like, it's not this situation of the Pharisees. Like the Pharisees are squabbling over this, this thing. That's not what caught me off guard. I mean, you're constantly seeing the Pharisees try to catch Jesus in his, in his uh, tracks. It's not that. It, it's the man's response. Look back at verse 12 of our passage. It says this. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was. The man who was healed had no idea who it was. <laughs> For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning and something worse may happen to you. I want you to think about this. We don't know how old this man is, but 38 years is it's quite a time. 
We know the average lifespan. I'm thinking the majority of his life, he's been labeled by his, his sickness. He's been labeled by what he has, uh, has become. I mean, every day, he, he just seems to be this, this helpless cause. And then somebody tells him to pick up his mat and walk, and suddenly he's walking again. And he's not curious to find out who it is that healed him. Like, I, I, I get it. It says that Jesus slipped away. Maybe he didn't have time to figure it out. But why wasn't he like running after the crowds of people that were around? Like, who just did this to me? Somebody just told me to pick up my mat and walk, and I can walk again. Now, we find the man in the temple. I suppose we got to give him credit where credit is due. He's in the temple, most likely probably worshiping or maybe offering a sacrifice to God, thanking him for his healing. But there's still a problem. You see, we can do all the right things. We can say all the right words. We can have all the right answers, but not have a right relationship. Billy Graham said it like this. Most of us know about God, but that's quite different than knowing God. For this man, we know that his relationship is not right because of the warning that Jesus gave him. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Jesus didn't die on the cross just to take away our sins. Jesus died on the cross to make a way for you and him. A way for you and him to have a, a relationship. You know, Christ's ransom for us was meant to return us to God. God has an unbiased opinion about sin. He hates it. All of it. He has a biased opinion about you. He loves you. All of you. He hates the sin. He loves the sinner. You see, when I, th- I think of, I think we sometimes hit this view that God is like out to get us. Especially when you hear passages like this, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. This isn't God's way of threatening us. This is God's way of warning us that, that sin, sin is only out to get you. Sin is sweet in the beginning, but bitter in the end. In James chapter 1, verse 14, it says, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their evil desires and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. It's not the temptation. It's the, it's the continued right, desire. It's enticed, and then gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Sin is out to get you, not God. Now, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you ever want to pay. Sin stands in the way of a relationship that we, we, we are called to have with God. Christ atoned for that sin. He compensated for that sin and the cross. But he, he did it so that we could have a relationship with him, not so we could run back to the sinning. Because if we continue to live in this sin, we're going to have chaos in our world. No peace. But if we know God, we're in a relationship with God, we can come to know a peace amidst the pain. That's what James chapter 4 says. It says, surrender to God, resist the devil, and he will run from you. Come near to God, he'll come near to you. You know, why scientists aren't quite sure uh, how big the universe clearly is, there's one thing for certain. We're pretty small amongst the cosmos. To be quite honest, um, the earth seems pretty trivial. Our, our solar system is just a, a blip on the map of the Milky Way galaxy of which um, we are still small in the midst of our own galaxy. But just when you might be tempted, just when you might be tempted to believe that God that God's not concerned with you. Here's what scripture tells us. From heaven, the Lord looks down and he sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. 
Now, it's overwhelming to think that there are 7.53 billion human beings on this earth right now. (laughs) And it can quickly get easy to begin to to think, uh, there's no way that God could care about my pain. But I want you to remember, the Milky Way galaxy is a spiral galaxy, and just one arm of that spiral galaxy (laughs) has more stars than there are people on this earth. And God set each and every one of those stars in its place so that we could look out at it And we could be reminded that God cares for us. Amidst the massive, God cares about the minute.